Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. Last week, we started a three-part series on healing, and we looked at the basic foundational scriptures now that establish healing as a part of the covenant. Now, for just a very quick review, Isaiah 53 verse 4 tells us that the same shed blood that took care of our sins also took care of our sicknesses and our pain. So healing is a part of the cross atonement. It's a part of the redemption. That means healing has already been bought and paid for 2,000 years ago. It's an accomplished fact. And this week is my one of my very favorite teachings. I love to do the many points because there's so many preconceived ideas about healing that don't line up with the Word of God. And there's a lot of man-made doctrines, a lot of myths that have actually turned into tradition. And many of those traditions are really good religious-sounding cliches. And they've been passed down from one generation to the next and told over and over and over until it came to the point where they were never questioned. Well, we need to realize that faith comes from hearing anything. If we hear it over and over, we can hear it a lie long enough. And finally, we're going to develop faith to believe that lie. So to have the victory now, we're going to have to reprogram our thinking, our mind. We're going to have to get rid of everything that doesn't line up with the Word of God and then begin to confess and believe what the Word of God says. I want you to look at this as though you're looking at it for the very first time. You cannot hear the word on healing too often because that's what keeps our faith strong in this area. Whatever you keep hearing, you'll develop stronger and stronger faith. Now, we're in the world, and there's going to be a negative influence that is going to try to come against your faith and try to pull your faith down. And so we have to make a conscious effort to let our mind dwell on what the Word of God has to say on healing. We have to listen to what the Word of God says on healing. Make sure that we don't listen to contrary things. We have to keep our eyes on it and keep it in the midst of our heart. And when we keep it down in our heart, then when the time comes that we need to be confessing the Word, it'll come up and out of us. Now, I want you to think of today's lesson as though you were in a court case where you were presenting the biblical evidence in favor of healing. Because as strange as it sounds, there's a lot of even Christians out there that do not know that healing is for today. And many times they're presenting their case against healing, and the world is definitely presenting its case against divine healing. And many times the world will do it in very subtle ways. So it's time for us to present a biblical case, if for no other reason, just to keep our faith strong in that area. Now, in a court case, if you can ever find another similar case where the court has ruled in a specific way, then they call that a precedence for all future cases. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 8 verse 2. Now I think God was setting a precedence right here for all future generations by stating His will once and for all in the area of healing. Matthew chapter 8 verse 2, a leper came to Jesus and bowed down to Him saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then the precedence was set there in verse 3 when Jesus stretched out His hand and He touched the leper and He said, I am willing be cleansed, and immediately the leprosy was gone. Okay, God's not a God of partiality. Isaiah tells us that we're to plead our case before the Lord with the Word of God. So it's good to go before the Lord and just simply say, Lord, if you were willing to heal that leper, you certainly set a precedence there for all time and eternity, and so you're willing to do it for me or you're willing to do it for anyone else that believes you for healing. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Okay, if we can find out what's being done in heaven, then immediately we can know what God's will is for this earth. Well, just ask yourself, is there any sickness in heaven? No. That is therefore God's will for earth. And we're told then to pray for that to come to pass. So we're actually told to pray for there to be health and healing and for that to be for all of God's children. That's God's will. Deuteronomy 28 verse 61 tells us every sickness and disease. Now later you can look up Deuteronomy 28 because that lists out all the blessings and the curses. The blessings are listed first and then verse 15 to the end of the chapter lists the curses. Now that Deuteronomy 28 verse 61 on your handout tells us that every sickness and disease, even those that are not listed in the book, are all a part of the curse. Mark it down that every sickness and every disease is a part of the curse. That's very important for you to know that. And he makes it very clear when he says even the ones not listed in this book are a part of the curse. Okay, now later out in the margin of your Bible, there by the Deuteronomy 28 verse 61... Write Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse. Therefore, you need to realize that since he redeemed us from the curse, that that means that he has redeemed us from all sickness and from all disease. So therefore, to put any part of the curse, including sickness, to put any part of that back on us, or to even give his permission for it to be put back on us, would violate his word. At times, we see so much good come out of a sickness. Maybe there's a chance to witness to the doctor, to the nurse, or your roommate that we're tempted to think that God must have allowed it. Okay, now you need to mark this down. You're never going to find in the New Testament where God ever sent evil to bring about good. You won't find that in the New Testament. You're not going to find in the New Testament where he ever allowed it even in his so-called permissive will. But he does teach that if evil comes, then he will turn it around and he will use it for good if we'll allow him to do so. Now, so do whatever it takes to reprogram your thinking until you come to a place where you're never even tempted to accuse God of sending evil or anything under the curse. See, God doesn't even have any evil to send. He's not the one sending the evil. But we do need to realize, just like it shows in Genesis 50:20, that what was meant for evil, in that particular case, what was intended for evil in Joseph's life by those brothers, God turned it around, it says, and God meant it for good. Well, I looked up that word meant in the Hebrew, and it means to weave something to bring about good. And then when you look up the word weaved, it means to force a way into or to force a way through it to bring that good. So if God sent the evil, he certainly wouldn't have to force his way into it or force his way through it to be able to bring good if he were actually the one sending it. It's coming from the enemy. And that's why God has to force his way through that thing that's coming from the enemy. He has to force his way into it and through it to bring good. But if we'll continue to trust him, any time during a trial of our faith, he will do that. He will force his way into it and through that evil happening, and he will weave it together so that it can bring good in our life. Now, God wants us to come to that place where we'll never accuse him of sending evil, never accuse him of sending sickness or, or allowing it. Sometimes, very subtly, we're thinking that God may have allowed that. But if it's coming, if it's a part of the curse, it's not God. He's not sending it. He's not the one allowing it. The end never justifies the means when it's God. 
Okay, look at the last part of verse 12. God could have reached the roommate without the sickness. He's not limited to evil to accomplish his good. You know, so many times we're subtly thinking about, well, God did this for that purpose, but we've got to realize he's bigger than that. He doesn't need Satan for a partner. You know, he can accomplish good his own way. Now, right out in the margin, Romans 2 verse 4. That tells us that it's God's kindness that leads a person to repentance. Some people have been led to repentance through sickness, but it's simply because what Satan meant for evil, God weaved it. He forced his way into it and through it and used it to bring good. But it's God's kindness that he sends to bring us to repentance. Romans 8 verse 28 is another scripture that so often we take out of context and we'll quote, well, all things work together for good. But we need to read the scriptures ahead of it and the scriptures behind it. See, there are three conditions for having all things work together for good. When you look at verse 26, that's the number one condition. It says, as we pray in the Spirit, then the Spirit intercedes according to the perfect will of the Father. He groans and intercedes according to the perfect will of the Father. And then we can know that all things work together for good. And the number two condition, for those that love Him. And the number three condition, for those who are called according to His purposes. So we need to take all of this in context. I want you to look up James 1.16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Okay, anytime he's telling us not to be deceived, then he's fixing to tell us what we need to watch for. He's giving us a warning. He said, Every good gift, every good thing that's bestowed, and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shifting shadows. So he's saying, I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that something else is coming from God. He said, it's the good things, it's the perfect gifts that are from above. And they're coming down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation. In other words, he's not going to send a good gift one time and a bad gift the next. He sends good and perfect gifts. That's coming from the Father of light, not the Father of darkness. Now, sickness is neither good nor is it perfect. You know, years ago, someone challenged me and they said, Well, how do you know that sickness is not a good gift? How can you know that? Maybe it is a good gift at times and it's in disguise. Well, I thought about that possibility and I I began to seek God. And he led me to two scriptures. He led me to Luke 11, 11 through 13, and he led me to Matthew 7, 9 through 11. I want you to look that one up. Matthew 7, 9 to 11. You know, don't be afraid to ask God. If you have questions in your mind, don't, don't be afraid to ask him. He'll give you an answer from his word. Now, this scripture in Matthew 7 let me know that I certainly did know what a good gift was. But before then, I I was questioning it. I thought, well, you know, maybe we don't. Maybe sometimes we don't know what's good for us. But in Matthew 7, verse 9, it says, What man is there among you when his son asks him for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if the son asks the father for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts... You need to circle that. Circle the word good gifts. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Now that little phrase just kind of just jumped off the page. You know, even in our finite understanding, we still can know what a good gift is. We know the difference between a piece of bread and a stone. We know the difference between a fish and a serpent. We know the difference between an egg and a scorpion. So we definitely know the difference between sickness and health. One's from the curse and one's a blessing. 
Satan is the only one who would deceive us into thinking that something under the curse could ever be good. Christ gave his very life to redeem us from the curse. Therefore, it's not good. Now, last week we looked up all the scriptures that are listed there. I'm just going to quote them for just a moment. That Isaiah 52, 14 scripture is prophesying when Christ is on the cross. And it says that when he took on these things on the cross, that literally his body was marred more than any man. And then in Isaiah 53, 4, it says that he bore our griefs and our sorrows. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, By his stripes we're healed. And then Matthew 8, verse 17, lets us know that that prophecy, when it said griefs and sorrows, was talking about sicknesses and diseases. Okay, this shows us then that Christ bore for us at the same time the sin, he bore for us guilt, he bore the punishment, and he bore physical disease, which is a result of or the consequences of sin in this world. Now, he would not bear for us what he intended to turn around and let us bear again. You know, I've heard some people say, well, God was allowing me to stay in this sickness because he was trying to teach me something. I had something to learn. Well, I want you to think about that. If sickness and disease was taken at the same time on the cross, no one would ever accuse God of allowing us to stay in sin for our good. But they will say that he permits sickness for our good at times. If he allows sickness, he allows sin because sickness is the result of or the consequences of sin in this world. They're both a part of the curse. Okay, the same substitute that took our sin took our sicknesses. He cannot allow sickness and permit that in our life and give permission for that if sin's not good for us. Okay, I want you to write down the reference Luke 11 verse 14. Now Jesus is being accused here of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And verse 17 is a very important scripture. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. You need to mark that scripture in your Bible. It's very, very important. Any kingdom divided against itself, Jesus said, will fall. And any house divided cannot stand. Okay, now he's saying here that Satan couldn't send the demons and then cast out demons at the same time without dividing his kingdom. It can't be sent and cast out or it would be a house divided. Okay, by the same token now, since Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, if he ever turned around then and put any part of that curse back on us, then he by his own words would be a house divided. And it wouldn't stand. And so Jesus is saying right here that he's not going to take something off of us like he did on the cross and then put it back on us. The same person who says that God sins or allows sickness does not think that it's opposing God's will to take medicine or anything else that they can get to stay alive. If sickness were of God or even allowed by God to perfect us, the doctors, hospitals, medicine, or even to call the elders would be rebellion against the will of God. We would have to pray and ask God if he were through using the sickness before we tried to get rid of it. Because, see, at times doctors would actually be going against the will of God if this were true. If he were, in fact, using that sickness to perfect us. Now, if we carried this line of thinking out, if we came upon an accident and someone was hurt badly, we would literally have to stop and pray and ask God if we were interfering with his will. You know, or or if he was through using it or if he was using that to perfect. Well, we know that's ridiculous. But many times, if we're not careful, very subtly, we'll begin falling for the fact that we think that God's using it. He's perfecting us or he's using that 
that sickness in our behalf. So we have to be careful with that kind of thinking because it can come in in a very subtle way. Now you'll hear some people talk about the permissive will of God. They'll say, well, I know God doesn't send evil, but he does permit it at times. Well, we're not going to find any place in the Word of God that talks about God's permissive will. You won't find that in the Word of God. Everything is either in God's will or it's outside of God's will. There's not any in-between. Now, He gave us a free will, but it's still outside of God's will for man to use his free will to sin. That was not within God's permissive will. God doesn't permit sin. Man's the one that permits sin, not God. God forbids it. I want you to look at the illustration. If your child were told not to play in the street and he disobeyed and got run over by a car, that would neither be your will nor your permissive will. In other words, if your child went out in the street after you told him not to, you certainly wouldn't permit a car to run over that child. You'd do everything in your power to keep it from happening. We need to realize that God is the same. God's not going to do anything to his children that we wouldn't do to ours. He's our Heavenly Father. The same feelings that we have for our children, he has for his children. We're made in his image. Now, if something bad comes against you, don't toy with the fact that it might be in God's permissive will. See, anything bad that comes against you is totally outside of God's will. And that's why he warns us against sin, because he doesn't want bad things to happen to us. That's why he gives us the Word of God. Now, even if there's times when we sin and and we open the door to evil, we're going to find out it's not God permitting the evil to come. Now, the enemy wants us to think that God has a permissive will. Because if the enemy can get us to think that God has a permissive will, then we're not going to fight against God. If we think God's permitting it, I'm not going to stand against it. So we've got to know God's trying to reprogram our thinking so that when something that's under the curse begins to come, that we'll stand against it, we'll fight it with the Word of God, and we'll know it's not coming from God. John 10.10 is a good way to categorize everything that comes your way. That lets you decide whether it's from the enemy or whether it's from God. John 10.10 says, The thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Christ gives life and life abundant. Now, you can make a chart. You can draw a line right down the middle of the page. Put kill, steal, and destroy on one side, life and life abundant on the other. And everything that comes, just stop and ask yourself, Is that abundant life? If it is, write it on that side of the page. If it's coming to kill, to steal, or destroy, put it on the other side. It's coming from the thief. And you can look at sickness, and sickness never brings life. And it certainly never brings abundant life. Sickness kills, it steals, it steals our time, it steals our peace, steals our finances, it steals our strength for ministry. When when you're sick, you don't feel like ministry. It destroys. It's from the enemy. I want you to look up Luke 13. Okay, Luke was telling the story of the woman who needed to be healed. And in verse 11, he said, Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by spirit. You need to underline that. It was a sickness caused by spirit. And then down in verse 16, this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound for 18 long years. Okay, this sickness was caused by a spirit, and it was Satan that had her bound. Sickness comes from the enemy. Okay, look there at the parentheses there on number 17. Disease is the offspring of its father Satan and its mother sin. The father of sickness is Satan, and the mother of sickness, in other words, what births it in, is sin in this world. 
And you ask, well, are you saying that every time that I'm sick, that means I've sinned? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus made that real clear. But I am saying that sickness is a direct result of the sin that came into the world at the fall of man. Last week we said that God revealed himself, revealed his covenant through his covenant names. Now he introduced himself as the Jehovah Rapha. He said, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Well, when we study through the Old Testament, we find that God revealed himself basically through these seven redemptive covenant names. He revealed himself as the Jehovah Jireh, the Lord that provides for us. He revealed himself as the Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner or the Lord our protection. See, every time he gave a covenant name, he was telling us what we had as a part of the cross atonement. He revealed himself as the Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. He revealed himself as the Jehovah Shamish, the Lord ever present. The Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. He revealed himself as the Jehovah Rapha, the Lord my shepherd. He revealed himself as the Jehovah Rapha, the Lord my healer. Okay, now these are redemptive names. That means that they point toward what we received at Calvary at our redemption. Now Jehovah Rapha is not just a promise. He doesn't just promise, okay, I'm going to heal you. When we realize that he is the Jehovah Rapha, when he said, I am the Lord that healeth thee, he was revealing redemption. He was giving us a picture of redemption. Okay, some people will say that it's not God's will to heal every single time. Well, when we say that, we're saying that he's not always the Jehovah Rapha. He's not always the Lord that healeth thee. Well, if we say he's not always our Jehovah Rapha, we would have to say that he's not always our Jehovah Sidkenu the Lord that gives us righteousness. We would have to say, well, he's not always my Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who gives me peace. We'd have to say that there's times when he's not always the Jehovah Shamish, the God ever present. So we have to realize that when he said, I am your Jehovah Rapha, that's a part of redemption. That's a part of the redemptive plan of God. And we can't take that away. It is always God's will to heal. It is argued that if healing is for all, then we'd never die. Okay, let's look at that argument a little bit more closely. Later, I want you to look up Exodus 23, 25, and 26. Put that reference down. Exodus 23, 25, and 26. That tells us two things. It tells us that God will remove sickness and he will fulfill our days. Okay, he doesn't say that we'll never die. He simply says, I'll remove sickness and I will fulfill your days. Okay, how can you know when your days are fulfilled? Well, write down Psalm 91 verse 16 because that tells us that we will be satisfied with a long life. Okay, now two things that that's promising. Number one, it's promising that it'll be a long life. So dying prematurely when we're young doesn't qualify as a long life. And then he says, number two, that we'll be satisfied. Now it would probably be safe to say that when we're satisfied, our days are fulfilled. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever known anyone who found out that they were dying to say, well, I've lived as long as I want to live? See, they all feel that at first that they've been shortchanged. I'm not saying there can't be a victory in it, but I'm saying that there's not a satisfaction there at first. Anytime that we find someone who has fulfilled their days and it's time to go home, they don't have to go home sick. Now, I could give you a lot of examples of different people who were satisfied with life and they decided that it was time to go home. They called their family in and and they said goodbye and they were ready to go home. Now, anytime the spirit leaves our body, then this body is going to cease to function. 
But we don't have to be sick to do that. God's wanting to reprogram our thinking. God is restoring healing back to the body. Now for a long time we were in the dark ages and healing was almost unheard of. And then as the last decade or two decades, God has been restoring the word of healing back to his body. And he's ready for us now to take that and begin to realize that it is a part of the redemptive plan again. It is a part of the atonement. He wants us to begin to walk in it. And we're getting the boat turned around. We're beginning to hear that where we can start to walk in it. But that's a truth of God that is being restored to his body. Now old timers used to talk about people dying of natural causes. Well, literally, when it's time for us to go home and our spirit man leaves our body, that body's going to quit functioning, and that would just be dying of natural causes. But any time that a Christian dies, it's going to be a victory because Paul tells us that death has lost its sting. But yet God is wanting us to get our mind programmed back to health and healing. Now, death should simply be a transformation, the leaving of the physical realm and the entering into the spiritual realm. It would be almost like leaving one room and entering into another room and changing clothes as you go through the doorway. We leave the old earth suit behind and and put on a glorified body. That's all that death is. It's just moving from one realm to the next realm. I want you to notice that the ones that were raised from the dead in the Bible were young. They were ones that had not lived out the fullness of their years. Now, the very fact that Jesus brought them back shows his protest against premature death. Now, later, if you'll look up Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2, it'll tell you that there is a time to die. But many people will quote this scripture when someone dies young, maybe in a car accident, and they'll say, well, it was just their time to go. Everybody, there's a time to die. Well, yes, there is a time to die. But just because someone dies does not necessarily mean that it was God's timing for them to die. Now, obviously, just because Lazarus died, just because Jairus' daughter died, does not mean that it was their time to pass on because, see, Jesus brought them back. Now, another scripture that lets us know that a, a person doesn't always wait to die when it's their time to die is Ecclesiastes 7, verse 17. It says, don't be exceedingly wicked. Don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So it is possible to die before our time. Now, that word wicked there also means unbelieving. Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, that if they had seen him, they had seen the Father. Put John 6, verse 38 out in the margin. Because Jesus said, I came down out of heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. That lets us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what Jesus did was the will of God. Now, we would have to say, therefore, that what Jesus was doing during his earthly ministry was the will of the Father, and we find passage after passage saying that he healed them all. So that was God's will. Anytime we've seen Jesus, anytime we read through the Gospels, then we can know exactly what the Father is like. So don't go to the Old Testament to find out what God's like. The Bible never tells us to go to the Old Testament to get a picture of God. They only had a limited knowledge of God, a limited revelation. But Jesus came and he said, I came to explain the Father. I'm the exact replica of the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So just keep in mind, there's not a place in the Word that tells you to go to the Old Testament to get a picture of God. Now, we're specifically told where to go to find out what God was like and what His will is. And that's looking at the life of Jesus. 
Sometimes when someone is prayed for and they don't get well, they assume that it's not God's will to heal at that time. Now this theory is disproved in Mark 9, 14-29. When the disciples prayed for the epileptic and he didn't get well, even after the disciples had failed, Jesus proved it was God's will to heal by healing the man and saying that the problem had been unbelief. Okay, there's times when there will be something blocked and that's when we need to pray and say, Lord, show me, open the door and show me what it is that's blocking the way. Jesus said, He that believeth in me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Now this promise totally disproves those who write books and articles against divine healing. Even if we forget about the greater works, the fact that we'll do the same works that he did proves divine healing is still a reality. He did not say that we'd do less works. He said we'll do the same works and greater works. Okay, there's no way for those who disbelieve in healing to explain this scripture away because healing power was constantly flowing through the life of Jesus. And he said that we as his body, that we would do the same thing and we would do even greater work. Even nature itself reveals the attitude of Christ toward the healing of the physical body. God created this body. And what happens to our physical body? If disease comes or if germs come, we have an immune system that immediately begins to fight it. If we break a leg, immediately that bone starts trying to mend itself. Cut your hand. By morning, you'll see it begin to knit together. We need to ask ourselves, would the way that God created our body, that nature, would it rebel against or act contrary to God's will? And we know that it wouldn't. Well, later you can look up Romans 1 verse 20, but that says that nature actually points toward the invisible attributes of God. Okay, in other words, what it's saying is that nature is pointing out God's nature. It's pointing out there his attitude hard healing even. The very fact that nature itself begins the healing process every single time reveals that it is God's will to heal. Most people have been taught that some people stay sick in order for God to get glory. And over and over, the New Testament tells us that Jesus went out and he healed them all. Well, all I can say is that if sickness were ever left on someone for God to get glory, then Jesus surely lost the Father a lot of glory when he healed all of them. So God doesn't get glory when we stay in sickness. It's when we take the Word of God and when we begin to appropriate that Word and begin to realize what he bought on Calvary and we begin to walk in that and teach it, that's when God gets the glory. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches that God disciplines those whom he loves. Okay, he does. But many people will say that sickness is discipline from God. I've heard many people say, well, I got sick simply because God was trying to teach me something. That Greek word discipline or chastisement, if you have a King James, it'll say chastisement. It means training and instruction. If you'll look in 2 Timothy later, 3.16, it says that it is the word not sickness, but it's the word that is given for our training and for our instruction and for our discipline. Now, if you realize that the same Greek word that's translated discipline over in Hebrews chapter 12 is translated training in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, then you realize that what God gives to train us, to chastise us, to discipline us, is His Word. That's what He's giving to us, to train us, to grow us up. This was something that that the Lord had given me a long time ago, and I woke up one morning, and this was just kind of just coming up out of my spirit. Cancer, heart disease, and broken limbs are no more an example of the discipline of God than the victim of child abuse is the example of the discipline of a good parent. 
Cancer, heart disease, and broken limbs are no more an example of the discipline of God than the victim of child abuse is an example of the discipline of a good parent. Okay, I want you to think what comes up inside of you any time that you sin. What comes up inside of you? It's the Word of God. The Word of God just comes up and, and all of a sudden you're convicted and it hurts. It's disciplining us. It's chastising us. God is a spirit and He disciplines us in our spirit. And He says that He does it with the Word of God. You need to mark 1 John 3, 8 in your Bible. It says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We need to get that into our mind and know it. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And he very clearly states that that was his purpose. Okay, how can we know that sickness is a work of the devil? How do we know that? Okay, look up Acts 10 verse 38. Mark it in your Bible. This gives us the will of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit concerning healing. Now, there's five major revelations in this Acts 10, verse 38. This is a power-packed scripture. It says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Okay, look at the five revelations in that. Number one revelation, this lets us know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all in agreement. Number two, Jesus was simply carrying out the work of his Father. He was anointed by God. God was with him. He was doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Christ was doing it. The Father anointed him to do it and was with him. And the Holy Spirit gave him the power to do it. Okay, number three, what he was doing was considered by God to be good. He went about doing good. Number four, we know that he healed them all. And number five, we know that the oppression was coming from the enemy. So that one scripture can give us a lot of information about God's will, about the power of the Holy Spirit, about the work of Jesus. In Matthew 9 verse 35, when Jesus said that the harvest was plenty and the laborers few, and he told us to pray for laborers, we always take that scripture to mean that there were many, many lost people who needed to be saved. But if you look carefully at this passage and look on into Matthew 10 verse 1, take it all in context, you see that actually the scripture is referring to sickness and disease. I want you to take note that Matthew 10 verse 1, Jesus is commissioning the laborers to cast out demons and heal the sick. So he's commissioning them to go out and take care of the whole man. He said, look, the fields are white into harvest. The laborers are few. And so he was calling for laborers to go into the harvest. And immediately when he called those laborers, he commissioned them to cast out demons and heal. So God is interested in the whole man. John 16 verse 7, Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. If it were going to eliminate healing or even diminish the healing ministry of Jesus, it would certainly not have been to our advantage because they had Jesus there healing all. So it certainly wouldn't have been to our advantage if that had taken away from his healing ministry. He said that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. Could the Spirit glorify Christ by telling the sick that the age of miracles is past or that anyone could not be healed now? It would not glorify Christ to modify his ministry to the sick. So healing certainly did not diminish when Jesus ascended to the Father. Now Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 tells us that if we have ears to hear, we need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And it goes on to say that the promises for the rewards are to the overcomer. 
through the ages there have been a lot of people who have talked about what they believed you know a lot of books written but you know too many times the church has listened to what man has believed and it's watered down the gospel but the overcoming life is not going to be coming from listening to what man has to say but it's going to come from hearing what the spirit says And when you read through the Word of God and you see the Word, you know that the Spirit and the Word are going to be in total agreement. So the Scriptures we've been reading, this is what the Spirit is saying to the church. This is where He's leading to the church today for us to come to a place where we began to walk in what has been accomplished. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel had a pestilence come upon them, Moses was instructed to put this bronze serpent up on a pole. And that was a type and shadow now of Jesus on the cross. Type and shadow of Christ actually becoming sin for us. Talks about that in John 3 verse 14. So that snake was a symbol of sin. And it was said that everyone that looked up at that snake on the pole was healed. Now, if we couldn't receive as much from looking to Jesus Christ today as they did from looking at that snake on a pole, the type and shadow, then we would actually have to say that the type and shadow was better than the real thing. And of course it's not. So I decided that we must be missing out on something in that verse. There must be more to that example. And so I kept studying that particular scripture in the Old Testament. And I noticed that they were looking. It said they were looking at the type of what was to come. They kept looking at it. And I thought, Lord, there must be a clue in this word looking. So I looked it up in the Hebrew. And it means to be occupied and influenced by that at which we're looking. And it went on to say that it was a continuous present tense stare that they were doing. They were staring at that snake because they believed Moses. And so they weren't going to take their eyes off it. They believed what Moses said. And they continually looked until they received their healing. Now when we think about that, then when we need a healing, we can't just glance at the Word of God. We can't just say, Lord, you know, I've tried it and it doesn't work. Or Lord, I sure am hoping that this works. I hope that this is truth. You know, we have to literally come to a place where we make a continuous present tense stare at the Word of God on healing and become 100% totally occupied and influenced by what the Word of God has to say on healing until we see the manifestation. So this was a determination. I believe there was a total determination on their part. And we have to develop this determination that, Lord, it doesn't matter how long it takes. I'm ready to stand as long as it takes because I believe your word. Now, a lot of people think that it's wrong to ask God for temporal blessings like healing. But, you know, many people throughout the scriptures became famous for seeking God for what we call temporal blessings many times. For example, you know, Naaman came down from Syria and brought his whole army just to get healed. It was written up in the Old Testament. Jairus and the man that was let down through the roof and the woman with the issue of blood, their stories were written up in the New Testament. They've been read down through the generation for the fact that they came to ask God for healing. So that's pleasing to God. And then the last, Jesus became our Jubilee. You know, the 50th year for the Israelite is known as the year of Jubilee. And everything that they lost was restored to them on that 50th year. In other words, the first Adam lost everything in the fall. But the second Adam, Jesus, has literally become our Jubilee. He's restored everything that's been lost, including health and healing. 
Okay, I want you to take the time to read through these. We had to go through them very quickly because of time. But I want you to take the time to meditate on these many points. Take them and, and let them come into your thinking. And I love to do these many points because many times it'll clear up misconceptions that we've been taught down through the years concerning healing. Now I want you to think of these many points as, as like just little mini sermons that, that you would use to present in a court of law. When you have all the facts of the Word of God, then physical healing for today could be, you know, it could win the case hands down. Now there's going to come a time when some of this is going to be very important for either you in your personal life or for someone to whom you're ministering. So don't just pass over this and just say, okay, this is just another Bible study series. I believe truly that God is bringing us to a point at this time of taking the Word of God and bringing healing, bringing the Scriptures on healing out so that we can take them and and believe them and walk in them and share them with others. Father, I thank you for the Word on healing. I thank you, Lord, for... The fact that you loved us enough that you would take our sin, our guilt, our sicknesses. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.